forget where it fits in the big story of the Bible because um, we, we teach and we understand that the Bible is one big story and the book of Acts and chapter 17 is a part of that big story. So it's good for us to understand um, where the book of Acts fits and maybe even more specifically, where chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, fit in the big story of the Bible. One of the things that we learn very, very early on in Scripture is that God's purpose is that His name would be great among the nation, that His name would be made great among His creation. And we see this really very early on. Actually, Genesis chapter 1, we see that... um, Adam and Eve were given two basic commands and they were told to, um, to be fruitful and to multiply. In other words, they are made in the image of God and through reproduction and uh, they would make more image bearers, that they would make more people, um, children who are made in the image of God and then as they, they expand, the, basically um, the, the borders of Eden would only hold so many people. So... As more people started being born who bore the image of God, they would be fruitful and multiply and they would subdue the earth. And so outside of the boundaries of Eden, they would go and begin bearing the image of God basically across the world so that the entire creation, um, the image of God and the glory of God would cover the, the, the land as the, um, the, so the glory of God would cover all of creation. So we see that. We see that, of course, that... We had problems with that because man fell. But we see in Genesis chapter 12 a very important passage of text. We see in Genesis 12 that God says through a man by the name of Abram, he says, listen, in you, um, I'm going to make many descendants out of you, and in you, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. What a great promise. In you, Abram, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And we see then over in in Psalm chapter um, 22, we see this, this idea of God blessing and glorifying His name. In Genesis, or Psalm chapter 22, verse 27, we see, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. This is God's big plan, that all of the nations of the earth will worship God Almighty, and that His glory would... Um, would extend throughout the entire universe. And we see over in, in Psalm chapter 46.10, it's a verse you all know. Or you know the first part of it. You all know Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am the Lord. But let's keep reading. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God is ex- is exalting Himself in all of the universe. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day, they pour forth speech. It's a 24-hour witness of the glory and splendor and majesty and beauty of God. This is God's purpose. Malachi chapter 111, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord will be great in all the earth. This is what God's doing. This is one of God's big purposes. He is glorious. And He desires that all people will see Him as He truly is in His beauty, in His splendor, in His 
um, divinity, in his transcendence, in his eminence, that all of creation would see him as he truly is. Well, how is he going to do that? Well, I don't have time to go through all of it. That's a year-long study, but a couple of verses that I think will help us see this. In chapter 49 of Genesis, a very, very interesting thing. Um, This is where um, Jacob is blessing his children. And listen to what he says to his child Judah. This is um, kind of a prophetic blessing, if you will. He says this, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? And the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, until, and to him shall the obedience of uh, Um, shall be the obedience of the people. You, Judah, are a lion and all and you will be, you will rule over the nations until all bow down before you. This ruler is Jesus who purchases for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Listen to Revelation chapter 5 and we see the fulfillment of this prophecy of this blessing. I won't read all of chapter 5, but listen. Then I saw on the right hand him who was seated on the throne and a scroll written on the back and on the front with seven seals. Um, And no one is found worthy to, to open this. And then it says this, And then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he will open the scroll and its seven seals. And then it says, And when he... um, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. That's so interesting. I'm going to show you the Lion of the tribe of Judah and behold, I saw a Lamb. And the elders, the living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp. And they sang a new song. Listen to the song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that fills them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And all the four, and the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's big picture. It's glorious. Here's the thing. On that day, I remember reading in, in Matthew, and Jesus asked his disciples this question. He says, who do people say that I am? And then he asked them specifically, who do you say that I am? And Jesus, and Peter gives that response. Says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, Peter, ha- Peter, man has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And on this, and 
I believe it is on this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Christ, who is the lion, who is the the lamb, who is of the tribe of Judah, who before him purchases a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, he builds his church and that church will go out and make disciples of all the nations. And so through Christ, specifically through his church, the name of the Lord would be made known in all the earth. So when we come to the book of Acts, and we come to Acts chapter 17 um, specifically, I wanted to set this passage in its big story. You see, because... Acts chapter 17 is not about, simply about a bunch of, a couple of missionaries going around teaching a better, a new and improved religion that is better than the pagan religion that the Romans are offering, or it is another religion among many other religions. No, this is God's people fulfilling God's purpose, taking His name, making it great in all of the world and in all of the universe, that all nations, tribes, and tongues, and people would fulfill the purposes of God in glorifying His name. This is what they're doing. They're not just simply going about saying, hey, i got a better religion for you. It's one that can save you from, from hell. It is to glorify God's name, by the way. Whenever we're out doing what God has called us to do, we are part of that big picture. This little church today is part of God's big picture. So that's just setting the book of Acts into this big story. I want to look ahead real quickly because as we do, um, we're, we're going to encounter um, Paul and his missionary team, Paul and Silas and, and Timothy going to two cities. They're going to go to the cities of Thessalonica and to the city of Berea. Now, when we come to the city of Thessalonica, we actually know quite a lot. Um, because Paul wrote two letters to the church at Thessalonica. Um, and I, actually, the first letter to Thessalonica, it, it can be argued, is the earliest or Paul's very first letter. Some would say Galatians, but we can debate that after church. But Thessalonica could very well be Paul's earliest letter, probably written not long after he visited um, the city of Thessalonica. And we learn a lot about the city and the people and the Christians there. We learn a lot about Paul himself in chapter 2, verse 9. Um, one of the things we learn is that he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Your witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In other words, we worked amongst you. So we know that Paul's there for at least three Sabbaths. I'm going to say he was there probably a little bit longer, maybe a few months. And he set up his tent-making business and he began to work. And, and so he was there for a long enough period of time that he was working amongst the people of the town. So he's 
staying in Th- so his stay in Thessalonica was of some length. We know that Timothy was sent back to encourage and strengthen them. I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit. In chapter 3, verse 2, it says, When we could bear it no longer, we were wondering how you were doing. We were concerned about you. We were wondering if you had been deceived. And when we, uh, when we could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy back to you to check up on you. And he's brought word to us that you're doing well. We'll talk a little bit about why he sent Timothy and why he didn't go himself. Um, but he sent Timothy back to encourage and to strengthen and to establish them. Paul wanted to go back, but it says in chapter 2, verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians, that he was hindered by Satan, which is one reason why he sent Timothy. I'll, I'll discuss what I believe that means when it says that he was hindered by Satan, why he could not go back to Thessalonica and encourage them. We also learn um, from Acts chapter 20, verse 4, that um, disciples who were made in Thessalonica during this particular missionary trip, um, that disciples eventually joined Paul on his trip to Rome. So they joined him in his missionary endeavors. And so we see disciples made, they grow, they mature, and they're um, brought into the ministry and they travel with Paul on his missionary journey. So that's the first city we'll encounter is the uh, city of Thessalonica. We'll also study the city of Berea. We don't know much about Berea, or we don't know much from Paul's writings about uh, the city of Berea. He didn't write a letter to them, but we do know a couple of things. One of the things we know is that people from Berea also joined Paul and Thessalonican believers as they traveled to Rome, and we'll see that again in Acts chapter twenty, verse four. So these are the two cities that we're going to encounter today on this missionary journey. This is Paul's second missionary journey, and. Uh, these are the two cities that we will encounter today. So um, if you will uh, follow along and read with me, um, follow as I read the, uh, our text today, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Listen to God's holy word. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many, many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But Jews were jealous, but, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, 
But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul and his missionary team have left Philippi and they are now traveling down to um, Thessalonica. It's about 100 miles away. And we believe that Paul has left Luke in Philippi. Um, and now they are traveling. Uh, this team is traveling down to Thessalonica. They pass through these two other cities. Nothing of account happens there. We, maybe they shared the gospel, but probably they just spent the night there and, and moved along. Um, and then we see Paul coming into the synagogue. This was Paul's custom. He, generally, he would go into a town, look for a synagogue, and then it was from there that he would begin his, uh, his ministry and his outreach and his evangelism. All right, and verses two through four describe to us what took place in the synagogue at Thessalonica. In fact, it says that he was there for three Sabbaths. So we know that Paul's in Thessalonica for at least three weeks, but maybe even longer. Um, and so I, I want to look at what took place in the synagogue um, on these Sabbaths when Paul met with the Jews there. And three words stand out, and I want and I want to talk about those those three things. Um, that Paul did. In the first one, it says he reasoned with them through the scriptures. And so the first word I want to look at is that he reasoned with them. And he reasoned with them through the scriptures. You need, I, I want to clarify for you that um, this reasoning from the scriptures is not so much preaching um, or even proclamation for the most part. Um, it is rather using the Hebrew scriptures to present his argument. So it's a presentation of his argument. He's in He's hoping to engage in dialogue um, regarding the meaning of these of the Hebrew scriptures. So remember, um, at this time, um, the Bible they have are the Hebrew scriptures, and he's reasoning from the scriptures. And, and I'll, we'll talk in a little bit about what what, what he reasons. Um, well, he's talking about that uh, about the person of Christ, and so more likely than not, I'll bet you he's using Psalm chapter two and Psalm chapter one ten, perhaps some passages in Deuteronomy, obviously Isaiah fifty three, um, and so he's reasoning, and 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 so what he's doing is he's presenting an argument, hoping to foster discussion and dialogue about what these texts mean. All right, so Paul is engaging with them, um, and verse three tells us what he was seeking to prove. Verse 3 tells us, and explaining and proving, explaining and proving, um, I'll get to those in a second, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And so he's reasoning from the scripture. And this is a basic syllogism, all right? Here's what it is. This is basic first century rhetoric, all right? He's reasoning that the Christ must suffer and rise from the dead. That's the first thing. I need to prove to you from the Hebrew scriptures that the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead. That's what I'm proved. Then, Jesus suffered and rose from the dead. Jesus, therefore, is the Christ. That's his argument, all right? And he's going to reason from the Old Testament scriptures that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Jesus suffered and rose from the dead. Jesus is, therefore, the Christ. That's his basic, logical argument. All right. So he begins to explain and prove, and these, these are two very important words that says 
And this idea of explaining that he opens their minds or he opens their eyes, that's what he's hoping to do, is open their eyes to the truth of what God has been doing um, throughout the ages and what he has done in the person of Jesus Christ. So he opens their minds, and to prove means that he, he is literally to set alongside. And so he sets alongside the life of Christ with the Hebrew Scriptures. So I'm going to lay out the Hebrew Scriptures over here. I'm going to lay out the life of Christ next to him, and you are going to see that the Hebrew Scriptures point to the person of Jesus Christ. I want to open your minds and open your eyes to see that the Christ had to suffer and die and rose, rise from the dead, that Jesus suffered and died and rose from the dead. Jesus is the Christ, and he's going to call them to place their hope and faith and trust in this Christ. That's what he's doing. This is a very logical, very um, rational approach to the people in the synagogue. He's not appealing to their emotions. He's not hyping them up, saying, you know, there's no fog shows or or fog machines. There's no, you know, worrying. It's not a lot. It is, let's sit down and talk about who Christ is. And he reasons from the scriptures. And let me just, um, just put a challenge out there for all of us. Could you reason from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ? If all you had was the Hebrew scriptures, or, or you're sharing the gospel with a, with a friend of yours who is Jewish, and they only accept, they will accept the Hebrew scriptures. Can you reason from the, the Hebrew scriptures that, that, that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, that Jesus suffered and rose from the dead? Jesus is the Christ. This is what Paul's doing. There's another word I want to focus on. I focus on three words, reason from the scriptures, um, explaining and proving. But there's another word that I want to, uh, to address, and that is this word, it was necessary. It was necessary that the Christ suffered and rose from the dead. Explaining and proving that it was necessary, necessary that Christ rose from the, suffered and rose from the dead. Um, so I want to talk about the necessity of Christ's suffering and his resurrection. Um, and, and I think it's necessary because not all would say that it is, it is necessary. Some would, would um, imply, well, Jesus was just simply a... Jesus was a good example. Or his suffering and death was a, an influence for us to be moral and to be good. So he's a good example of somebody who loves God even to the, to, to the detriment of his own welfare and well-being. That's what we need. Some would argue what we need is a good example to show what it means to love God. And Jesus loved God with all of his being. And he's a good example. That's what his suffering and his death meant. Others would say, no, it teaches us morality. It teaches us how we should um, lay down our lives for others. And Christ loved us so much that he laid down his life for us. But it wasn't necessary. It was good. Let me push back on that and say that, well, his life is a great example. His life and his death were a great example. 
And there should be some moral influence for us. Our need was not lack of a good influence. Our need as fallen human beings was not that we needed another good example. We have good examples of people, men and women, laying down their lives for others all the time. I see it on the news regularly. I see a dog in a frozen river and somebody risks their life and jumps into the frozen river to save a dog, not even another human being. We, we see it in the military all the time. People laying down their lives for others. These are great examples. And we can take heart and be encouraged by these great examples, but man does not simply need another good example. We've got them. Because man's need isn't lack of good examples. Man's need is that he has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the result of that sin is death, both eternal and physical death. He doesn't need another good example. He needs atonement. He needs atonement. Let me talk a little bit about atonement. This idea of atonement is, shouldn't be a fancy word. It shouldn't be a word that is foreign to us as believers. But let me describe it. If it may be foreign to us, it simply means to wipe away or to, to purify or to cleanse. It comes from the Hebrew idea. The Hebrew word is kippur. And you're all familiar with that. Probably you've heard of the, of the Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur. Yom is day, Kippur is atonement. It is the day of atonement. The day where your sins are washed away. The day where the blood is um, spilt upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Which is the caparet, and Jesus claims that he is the mercy seat anyways. Um, Where the blood, Jesus is the lamb, he's the mercy seat, he is the day of atonement, he is everything. What we need is we need our sins to be wiped away. We need our sins to be covered. It is necessary for Christ to die and to suffer so that our sins, our need, our sins are taken away and wiped away and covered over because man's problem is not lack of good influence or example. Our problem is that we have sinned and that the penalty of sin is death both physical and eternal. And in His death, Jesus bore the penalty of our sin. It is necessary. It is necessary for Christians of this age to understand this as well. It wasn't just necessary if you lived in, you know, the fifth decade or the the fifth decade of the first century and lived in the Roman town of Thessalonica. If you live in the Rim country in 2021, you need to know that your sins need to be forgiven. They need to be wiped away. And Jesus bore the penalty of your sin. On the cross, he bore God's wrath and he died for sin and to sin. Now, here's a very logical and very good question that you might be thinking. But if Jesus was sinless, then why did he have to die? If Jesus was sinless, if the wages of sin is death, and Jesus was without sin, how come he had to die? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. Because his death was substitutionary. That is, his death was for you. His death was for me. His death wasn't because he sinned. His death was because you sinned. His death was because I sinned. He was the substitute. He took our place. It was necessary that Christ would suffer 
His death was substitutionary. It was in our place. Let's look at Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6. I think I have it up on the screen. Look at this. This is such an amazing... I want you to note... For some of you, you're going to love this. Note the pronouns, right? And all you grammar folks. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is substitutionary atonement. He was pierced for what? Our transgressions. It was our transgressions, not his. He was pierced. He was crushed for what? Our iniquities, not for his iniquities. He's the substitute. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds were healed. We're the ones who've gone astray. We're the ones who've turned aside. And the Lord laid on him our iniquity of us all. This is substitutionary atonement. Christ died, suffered to wipe away our sins. He was without sin and he bore our iniquity. His death was necessary to wipe away sin and death. It is the innocent for the guilty. That's good news. That is great news. This is the gospel. Paul is, this is what Paul is doing. He's reasoning from the scriptures that it was necessary for this to happen. Not only that he had to suffer, but he had to rise from the dead. And just real briefly, that the resurrection validates the offering. The offering, Jesus offered himself for our sins. And he died. But he didn't stay dead. He lives forever, which validates that the offering was accepted. The payment for sin has been accepted and you can be forgiven of your sins. That's what Paul is reasoning from the Scriptures to bring about. So, Paul is in the synagogue and he's reasoning from the Scriptures. He's setting the Scriptures alongside the person of Christ and he's reasoning that it was necessary, that the, that the Old Testament declared that it was necessary that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead. And he does that by using the Old Testament Scriptures. And then he says that Jesus, this man who lived in, in Galilee, died at the hands of uh, the Jews and of the hands of the Romans. Romans, and Jesus died and he rose again. Therefore, this Jesus is the Christ and you need to believe in his name. And many do. Many receive. There's reception, and in this message, there's both reception and rejection. Many, many people believe, some, it says some Jews and many Greeks and a lot of leading women. God's word goes forth and God's word brings about its attendance, its intended effects, and that is belief, faith in the message. And so we see the gospel increasing. It's increasing to the Gentiles. Jews are still coming to know Christ in, in this, um, but it's certainly uh, fewer than the Gentiles. The Gentiles, more Gentiles are coming. It says many Gentiles and a few Greeks and lots of leading women. In other words, the good news transcends gender, race, and economics. These were leading women who, uh, more likely than not, were somewhat well off. Which is interesting for Luke, because Luke loves to focus on the poor. But now he's talking about leading women. In other words, it's not just the poor who are 
have the gospel made available to them. It is everybody. It is the poor and the wealthy. It is the leading people and the, and the lagging people. And so um, it is Jew and it is Gentile, everybody. Which fulfills our Revelation 5 passage that I read earlier. And before the throne with people from every nation and tribe and tongue and people standing before the throne. And God says, I am going to make you a priest. You are priests in my temple. So not everybody receives the word. Some, are, some reject it. And je- the jealousy that it speaks of, the Jews, many of the Jews were jealous, and this jealousy provoked violence. And these, some Jewish pl- people align themselves. Um, this isn't an, an exact translation, but I think it's a pretty good one. The ne'er-do-wells. There's folks who hung out in the Agora. The Agora would be the marketplace, and they were agorites. And they were just those who were kind of just hanging out in the marketplace, looking for trouble. (laughs) They're the 'er ne'er-do-wells. And they execute mob justice. I I want you to note, I thought this was interesting, but maybe it was just interesting to me, the contrast between the reasonableness of Paul's message with the emotionalism of the crowd. The crowd is prompted simply by emotion. Not by reason, not by logic, not by anything. They are a rabble who is incited by emotion. But Paul's method was, let's sit down and talk about these things. And they bring two charges against the missionaries. And the first charge is that they upset the stability of the empire. That is, they are troublemakers. Those who have, who have turned the world upside down have come here as well. Basically, the idea here is just these guys are troublemakers. And they're here. We need to do something about them. The second charge was much more serious. They declare that there's another king, Jesus. This is the charge of sedition. This is serious. It is not only serious for um, those being accused, but it's a very serious charge for the city. Thessalonica is a very prominent city. And um, if Rome finds out that you're tolerating somebody who's making a claim against Caesar to the throne against Caesar, uh, you've got problems. So they're going to take care of this seditious act very, very quickly. Very serious charge. They're acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar and they're proclaiming another king. That is Jesus. And in some ways, that's true. They were proclaiming that Jesus is king. They are proclaiming that he's going to come again and judge the world, both the living and the dead. They're, they're, They're saying these things. But they're certainly not being seditious. And I'd I'd, I'd like to say this has been one of the very early and ongoing and persistent charges against the church and against believers. After all, what was Jesus hung on a cross for? What was the civil charge? Now, we know why he was hung on a cross. We know that he was hung on a cross to pay for our sins, but that's not why Rome put him on a cross. Rome put him on a cross for a very specific reason. That he claims to be king. He is an insurrectionist. 
And this has been going on since the days of Jesus. And now we see Paul and Silas being charged with insurrection. You are proclaiming loyalty to another king. I think I've mentioned before, but I'll mention it again. In the, in the middle of the late 2nd century, one of the early patristic fathers, Justin Martyr, wrote a whole treatise, a whole, pen, a whole book about how Christians are actually good citizens. And part of this is Christians are good citizens. We're not here to upset um, and overthrow the king or Caesar. But this has always been the charge. After the Reformation, maybe a hundred years after the Reformation, groups that, that arose out of the Reformation, like the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Quakers, they, they all came and they all proclaimed um, that the state is not our king. And that as believers, we have freedom of conscience to worship God according to our conscience. Well, the state didn't like that. And the state put them to death. This has been a, a constant charge that Christians are seditious by nature. But Christians have always maintained, no, we're actually really good citizens. Actually, we are a benefit to the state. We are good citizens. We benefit the state. But the problem is, is that we also recognize the state is not our ultimate authority. So the state always has problems with that. Because the state desires to be our ultimate authority. The state desires to rule over people with an iron fist and has ultimate and complete control. And if you will not bow your knee to the state, you will be eliminated. Christianity has always had, well, we're always good citizens. But Jesus is our king. That's what's going on here. They're proclaiming that Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. We're not here to overthrow your government. We're here to proclaim, though, that Jesus is King and Lord. Well, they got mad, so they, uh, they kicked him out. Um, and what this says, it says that they took a security from Jason. So they went to this guy Jason's house. We don't know if Jason was an innkeeper or maybe a, a, a brother in Christ. Maybe both. Maybe he's an innkeeper, came to know Christ, and that's who they, they were staying with. But anyway, they went to Jason's house. Um, dragged him out, took a security. Now, here's what the security did. The security was simply this. I'm going to take money from you, and you're going to make sure that these rabble-rousers leave town. If they leave town and don't come back, you'll get your money back. If they do, not only do you not get, get to keep, uh, not only do you not get your money back, but um, we are going to arrest and kill those who um, came. So that's, that's the, the deal, basically. Um, Jason puts up a security and they escort Paul and Silas um, and Timothy out by night and they head on down to Berea. This is why I think in 1 Corinthians 2.18 where it says that I, I wanted to come and visit you, but Satan hindered me. Um, chapter 2, uh, verse 18. Is it 18? Put 218, but that doesn't seem right to me. Maybe it is. Oh, yeah. But since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, 
we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. What is our hope and our joy and crown of blessing but you? We can't, really can't come back. Paul sees this, I believe Paul sees this as a ploy of Satan to keep him from coming back in and um, establishing the people of God there. So that's what's going on in Thessalonica. Now they move along and they come to Berea. Um, Berea is, is a famous account because we all say, I mean, I don't think the Bereans knew how many churches and ministries would be named after them. Um, but they became, they were noble. Um, and again, they go to the synagogue. The missionaries go to the synagogue. And they're described with three terms. They are noble, eager, and they examined the scriptures. Once again, you will note the appeal is to the intellect. It is not to the emotion. Um, it is an appeal to the intellect. They, um, they examine the scriptures. And I want to focus on, on two things. They're, the first one is their examination of the scriptures. And I found this really interesting. Um, maybe another way to put it is they ransacked the scriptures. I like that. They just, they just delved in it. And you think about what they would have had to do. Because um, people in those days didn't have a copy of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, first of all, uh, books really hadn't even been invented yet. This is still not, this is not even, this is unrealized technology. So when you hold this up, believe it or not, you're holding up a piece of technology. But they hadn't realized that. They were on scrolls. And most people didn't have the money or and it was very expensive and very difficult. And so what would they have to do? Probably on a day when the synagogue is not meeting, it says that they examine the scriptures daily. They'd go down to the synagogue and pull out scrolls and start looking and like going, what is Paul saying? That's pretty interesting. Oh, I see that here. Oh, I don't think he's right. And they're examining the scriptures. Man, this took effort. It took effort to examine the scriptures. But notice who's doing it. It is... Um, the people of Berea from the synagogue. In other words, I think what we see here is we see that Reformation idea of the priesthood of believers. You see, for nearly a thousand years prior to the Reformation, it was deemed dangerous for non-clergy to read the Bible. It was even outlawed for non-clergy to read the Bible or to have a Bible. They said, oh, we can't give the Bible to the people. Because who knows what they might end up believing. And so they had the Bible, and it was written in Latin. And by the time of the Reformation, nobody spoke Latin. And the priest would read the Latin. He may not have even understood Latin. He just knew how to read it. And they're just reading the Bible, and nobody's understanding it. One of the key ideas of the Reformers it's called the priesthood of the believers. In other words, you do not need to be clergy to understand God's word. This comes from Bereans. Regular, everyday folks go and ransack the scriptures to see if these things are true. Ordinary Christians can understand the word of God. The scriptures are clear. I want you to read. This is a, from a, a confession that we would, we would adhere to. Um, the Second London Baptist Confession, it's the 1689, but listen to what it says. It says, some things in Scripture are clearer than others. Yeah. And some people understand the teachings more clearly than others. Yeah. 
However, the things that must be known, believed, and obeyed for salvation are so clearly set forth and explained in one part of the Scripture or another that both the educated and the uneducated may achieve a sufficient understanding of them by properly using ordinary measures. Folks, there is no reason. The idea here is this very Reformation idea, and that is the Scriptures are clear. I'm not saying that you understand everything about them. There are some things that are hard. You guys come to me with questions afterwards. I don't know. I don't say it that way. I say, that's a good question. Let me research that. But in my mind, I have no idea what you're talking about. Never thought of that. It's a good question. But there are things, the things that are known and believed and obeyed for salvation are so clear that you do not need to be an educated person to understand them. This is one of the truths we talk about. It's called the, the clarity of Scripture. It is a confirmation that ordinary Christians can understand God's Word using ordinary measures. Well, what does that mean? What are the ordinary measures? Well, I'll give you an example. What you're doing right now is utilizing the ordinary means to understand the Scriptures. You're coming and hearing a sermon preached. That is one of the ordinary measures of understanding the Scriptures. Or going to a Bible study. By the way, we have one on Wednesday night. Sam's teaching. It's the book of Genesis. You should be here. It's awesome. All right? But that's an ordinary measure that can be used. Or when Sandra's doing her Friday night Bible study at the Tonto um, Apache Reservation at the church at Reconcile Church. Or Sunday morning. These are ordinary measures. This is why we read scripture during our service. These are ordinary measures that you can understand. Here's another one. You're not like the Bereans. You have God's Word sitting in your home. You've probably got multiple copies. And if you don't, you have a phone. And there are free apps of the Bible. And there are free apps. Free apps of the Bible. One of the ordinary means is that you can spend time reading God's Word on a regular basis. These are ordinary measures that are used so that you can understand what God is saying about Himself. And this is so necessary today because the modern church, well, I shouldn't say this, when every historical area, people, uh, religious leaders have lamented the lack of knowledge of God's word. But the modern church is woefully ignorant of God's word, woefully ignorant of the scriptures. When we look at some of the studies that um, Barna has done and uh, the, the Ligonaire um, survey of, of, of theology. A majority of Christians, 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 the majority affirm the idea that Jesus is the greatest being that God created, the first and greatest being of, that God made. That is outright heresy that any Christian, I mean, even if it's a, it's a small majority, it's like 56%. That should be like it's zero. This is basic Christianity. You can read, ordinary measure, John 1.1. 1, 1. 
You do not need to be a genius. You do not need to be a Greek scholar. You do not need to be a theologian. Well, you're already a theologian. You do not need to have some higher education. You can read John 1 and say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Word is Jesus. He is the beginning. He is the creator of all things. Ordinary measures. Nobody should have such a horrible idea. It doesn't come from the Bible. And so I pray that in this church we don't have that idea. Here's another one, and I I saw this a lot this week on some some things that I was reading and watching, and the idea, even at a, I was listening to something from a a Christian booksellers, a survey at the Christian booksellers convention. The question is, man basically good? And how many people said, yes, man is basically good? That is not a biblical idea. It is not found anywhere in Scripture. Just read Romans 3. I don't need to go much further. What Paul does in Romans 3 is he takes Scriptures from all over the Old Testament and piles them up. There is none righteous. No, not even one. Nobody seeks God. There is none who does good. The poison of of, of snakes is on their lips. And he just goes on and on and on and on and on. Therefore, we conclude that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jeremiah says that your heart is wicked by nature. In fact, and Paul says in Ephesians, you are by nature children of wrath. That is who you are by nature. And that none does good. This is why we need a Savior. I say that not to, to, to bring you down. But when you see your great need for a Savior, because even though you may be a child of wrath by nature, even though there is none who does good, Christ has covered that sin. So these, this is, the, this is the, the Bereans. And I love this next one, this idea that they were eager. They received the word with eagerness. Now, I don't, I'm not talking to anybody here, but I wonder how many people got up to go to church today and said, I have to go to church today. I'm just going to drone on and read the Bible and then the sermon's going to just drone forever and ever and ever. The Bereans were eager to dig into God's Word. Now, I know there are times when, you know, we're just having a day. It's like, I don't want to do anything. I just want to just, like, shut down. I know that. But in general, I pray that we would be eager to love God's Word. We would be eager to come in and hear God's Word. We would be eager to find places where we can discuss and hear God's Word. So the thing that stands out to me about the, the Bereans is their eagerness. And then what do we see? Many believed. That, that makes sense. The fruit of searching the Scriptures to see if what Paul said was true is belief. And that's good for non-believers and believers. If you're a believer here today and you say, gee, I wonder... I wonder how I could get more faith. Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. They search the Scriptures and they believe that's the fruit of reading the Scriptures. And so many believed. Again, um, you, you see this, the same idea of Jews and Greeks and leading women. But once again, you see crowds are stirred up and they run Paul out of town. And Paul left for Athens. And I just want to bring up one more main point here. Um, and that is, um, I'm really fast. One of the things I'm learning is Paul's administrative methods. Paul's an administrator. 
So let's look at the administration that's going on here. Timothy and Silas, it tells us, stay at Berea. Paul goes on to Athens by himself. Soon, according to 1 Thessalonians, Timothy goes back to Thessalonica. So in our text, in, in, in chapter um, 17, or 16 and 17, we three, see three new churches started on this missionary journey, don't we? We see Philippi, and who stays back at Philippi? Luke stays back at Philippi to strengthen and encourage and to um, establish the people. They go on, they plant churches in Thessalonica. Eventually, Timothy goes back and he encourages and strengthens and establishes the church there. They plant a church in Berea. Silas stays back and encourages and establishes and strengthens the believers in Berea. Paul's an administrator. This is not like just haphazard, let's go and preach the gospel and go. Preach the gospel, we start a church, and I leave a leader behind who is going to establish them and strengthen them and encourage them and teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't know anything about the gospel. They just heard it. So somebody, a mature believer, stays behind and trains. He disciples them. This is what Jesus said. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Make disciples, bring them into the faith, and then teach them to grow. This is exactly what Paul's doing. He's not making it up. He got it from Jesus. They are planting and staffing churches. They're not just preaching another religion. Here's what they're doing. They're fulfilling the big purpose of God by making his name great among the nations. They're going into these towns, declaring the greatness and beauty and splendor and glory of God. And when people believe, they leave people behind to teach them and instruct them. And then they move on to the next town and they teach the glory and splendor of God. Basically, here's what's going on, folks. The glory of God is covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. Um, And this is what's going on. God's glory is spreading. God's purposes from Genesis are being fulfilled in his church as they go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you're a believer today because of that. They didn't even know about a place called America. Didn't know of a place called United States of America. Had no concept of it. But they were being faithful to declare the praises of God wherever they went. And as a result, we are here today proclaiming the praises of God. So I'll conclude with this. God is seen in his beauty through the gospel message of salvation for sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is seen in his beauty. God is seen as glorious. God is seen as um, in all of his splendor. How? How do we see God in all of his splendor? How do we see God in all of his glory? Through the gospel message of salvation of sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We understand that God is glorious and beautiful because we see that Christ died for our sins and rose again, uh, confirming that the payment has been accepted and that he lives and we will live. That's how God is glorified. The task that he has given to his people way back in Genesis chapter 1 and he continues to make to his people today. It hasn't changed. God didn't make up a bunch of new stuff or change course. His task that he has given to his people and the task that he has given to this church and the task that he has given to each of us as individuals is to make his name great 
in all of the nations. And we can begin with pine and strawberry and paisin and wherever we live. Make his name great where you live. And let's, and let's make sure that the glory of God covers the earth. Our Father, we're so grateful this day.